Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Great, I think we should get going. Welcome once again to another edition of Word in Your Ear in um, formerly sweltering and now sadly rain-lashed Islington. Now, David and I tonight are talking to um, a brilliant broadcaster and an author of various terrific books about music, including titles on Cab Calloway and Fats Waller, and I believe one on uh, Billy J. Kramer. Is it coming out very soon? And he has now turned his attention to the um, epic... Um, fascinating, um, ultimately very sad, and always a generously drink-filled life of Harry Nielsen. So could you please welcome the tremendous Alan Shipton. Marvellous. <laughs> and the first question would obviously be, I think, why? What was it about Harry Nielsen that made you want to um, spend such a vast amount of your uh, working life <laughs> pondering the subject? Well, uh, back in mm, 2002, I was making a series for Radio 2 about Richard Perry, the record producer. Uh, I was really interested in Richard because um, not only was he the first man from a major label to produce Captain Beefheart, uh, (laughs) Beefheart fans would know Safe as Milk, which is an interesting album. Um, A lot of people got their start at that stage, and it... uh, it has that wonderful track that goes, Electricity. Oh, yes. Great, great album. Uh, the next thing he produced was Fats Domino, and the next thing he produced after that was Ella Fitzgerald. And people here would know him for conducting the Tiny Tim concert at the Albert Hall with the LSO, where Tiny Tim sang Tiptoe Through the Tulips to a crowd of people all waving tulips in the Albert Hall. So Richard was, it was a great story. And... While I was there, sort of going through this extraordinary catalogue of people that he'd produced, obviously two of the great albums are Nielsen Schmielsen and Son of Schmielsen, which come from 1971 and 2 respectively. They're sort of the pinnacle in some ways of Harry's career. And when I was chatting to Richard, I said, well, it's been quite hard to research this because I thought there'd be a book about Harry Nielsen. And he said, no, there isn't and there's not going to be. And it turned out that the family had been so upset by his death in 1993, they just decided that they didn't want to open up the boxes of memorabilia 
and to look again at this life, which, as you've heard, when we started, a very meteoric rise to stardom, and then a very, very sad descent into really not a great middle age and a very short life, curtailed slightly by the good living that went on. I mean, um, as one of his better friends said to me, a bottle of brandy and a kilo of coke a day is not probably going to keep you alive beyond your mid-50s. Five a day. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, there wasn't a book. And it took a lot of detective work to track down the family, the estate, the lawyers. Once I had done and convinced them that I was really serious because the great thing about it was I fell in love with the music I I heard those two albums I heard in particular what Richard had done and one of the things he did was to talk me through the production process of making those very complicated albums we went through every blow of Carly Simon's You're So Vain which he produced very shortly afterwards in which um, Mick Jagger and Harry Nilsson are the backing singers Um, and he showed me how he put these things together. Same thing with Ringo and uh, some of Ringo's solo albums. So she's 16, she's beautiful, she's mine. Harry Nielsen is every other voice on that, apart from Ringo's. And Richard showed me how he'd done it, how he'd multi-layered it. He said, but I learned all that from Harry. So just because it's interesting, I wanted to know, who was this guy? How did he come to exp- discover multi-tracking? How did he make all these amazing things? Well, going back just to, to this very early life, I mean, if, if great art comes from adversity, then there's a strong chance that great art would have come from the life of Harry Nilsson, because it's a really, really complicated life, isn't it? He's, he's described a situation with his father and his mother. Well, his father... Well, his father, he was told, he was told had died in the war, isn't Yeah, right? he, he was told that his father was a fighting seabee, um, who were the uh, enlisted arm of the Merchant Navy, who went off and did the construction of airfields in the Pacific Theatre of War. They were... Um, they were effectively merchant seamen with guns and uh, landscaping equipment. And they, they travelled the Pacific Theatre of War and did a lot of great deeds. And his mum told Harry that, you know, your dad's away at sea, he's a fighting seabee. And then he was given to understand his father had died. In fact, his father was living just the other side of New York. Uh, they lived in, um, in Brooklyn, where this photograph was taken. And uh, Harry's dad had settled just the other side of the river in uh, Newark, New Jersey, and had another family and another wife. Um, and all that was kept from him, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, completely the, kept from him. a picture in a minute of, the, of when he met up with him later on. Yeah. So, and his mother was, again, an absolutely extraordinary woman. His mother was... We have was, a photograph of here. There she is. Yeah, there she is. Um, Betty. quality <laughs> photograph. American-Irish, uh, American and that's the, uh, the Thanksgiving. Is that, yeah, the Thanksgiving turkey. I can't turn around too much or this slightly dodgy lead is going to fall out of the mic. Um, yeah, so that's the Thanksgiving turkey. And she was from an Irish-American Brooklyn family where the crack round the table, you know, not, not the crack that you know people have nowadays. This is Irish chit-chat. Um, that was the modus operandi of the family. But um, she uh, kept falling out with her family. So she fell out with them when Harry was nine or seven and they moved to California. And so he had this golden childhood for a while in California. But um, unfortunately, this lovely woman who you see there cooking the thanks. We're cutting out. Should we swap Replace the mics. The road crew are here. Terry stashed in. So, yeah, so cooking the Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) Well done, Terry. Thank you, Terry. Um, she um, she was rather good at bouncing checks and um, using uh, stolen credit cards to uh, keep the family going. 
And finally... Didn't he uh, hold up a store? She owed $60 and he... Yeah, this is a bit later on. This is when he's a teenager. He he held up a store in order to uh, take the money out of the till to pay one of the more violent creditors who turned up to threaten his (laughs) mum. Uh, and I mean, the, the, the childhood was ghastly. I mean, he was in Brooklyn for a while. Then he was on the West Coast. Then they had to leave in a hurry. Um, they, uh, she, she actually used a fraudulent checkbook to get them tickets to fly back from the West to New York and had to disappear. So they turned up living with an uncle in Long Island and they were stowed away in the house living in the attic in the basement and officially not there at all. And then she uh, had a tiff with people. So she went back to the West and Harry decided to try and stay at school. I mean, he was quite keen on school. He was quite good at school. He was a mathematical genius, amongst other things, and very good at sport. Uh, so he tried to stay on uh, at the school in Long Island, but unfortunately had a punch-up with one of the other caddies on the golf course where he was earning his money at weekends, and he was sacked. And so he then, aged 16, thumbed a lift from... Long Island to his uncle's house in Los Angeles, uh, losing his virginity on the way um, in a knocking shop in Mexico. Uh, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary story. And you know, he, he this extraordinary journey across the state, the states, as a young man, coloured all his lyrics and everything. And the other thing that every lyric he wrote for the first four or five years of being a songwriter was about abandoned fathers or children abandoned by their fathers. So. It's very much the, the music then mirrored the yeah, life. So, That's right. So he didn't have to make up a myth or anything, you know, because this very often happens with people like Bob Dylan, you know, take a little bit of truth and turn it into a vast mythological past. He didn't have to do this, Doug. I think, if anything, Harry played it down. I mean, the, the, the great story about that, that's his dad there, who suddenly came out of the woodwork when his son had a hit record. Precisely what happens, happens very often. John Lennon and Phil Liner and millions of other. If you want to find your long lost father, absolutely, have a hit, have record. A hit record. It'll come yeah. straight out. But um, what, what effect did it have on him? I think he wrote a song about it, didn't he? Nineteen forty-one. Well, he wrote several songs. Yeah. I mean, Daddy's song, which the the uh, the monkeys did. Um, the Cuddly Toy, which is a, a really awful song about the cynicism of being an abandoned child and um, taking advantage of a teenage girl. You, you don't have any feelings for them at all. Quite a quite a cruel song. And then 1941, obviously. Yeah which then became strangely prophetic. And he found himself living the life with his second wife that um, he describes in the song, everything's wonderful, and then suddenly she's alone with a child. And he he deserted his own son in the same way as he was deserted by his dad, wasn't he? Yes, although I'd have to say that Zach Nielsen has made a great, um, a a much better fist of coming back from that adversity than his dad did. Zach is the the son of that marriage and, and is a very fine drummer now and actually working quite regularly. I mean, he's, he's overcome it, which, yeah. all, all credit to him. Well, this is an, an early shot, and uh, we're trying to, it's very hard to find any early pictures of him, actually, but uh, there's a lovely bit in it where he avoids the draft. By What was his technique for avoiding going to the army? It was absolutely brilliant. Well, um, Something to do with diabetes. Yes, he was told that if he drank a half litre of maple syrup before he took the blood test in the morning... They think he might be diabetic, but they usually retest it in the afternoon after an army lunch of spuds and boiled meat. So he'd secreted another bottle of maple syrup down his trousers. And after eating the army lunch, he disappeared and drank the second bottle. And his blood sugar levels were off the scale and he was declared 4F, which meant unfit for service. But as the war went on, this is the Vietnam War, 
uh, they were looking for less and less fit men to send out. And uh, unfortunately, he finally passed. And uh, so at this point, and this is typical of Harry turning adversity into a one-line gag, he got married because he discovered that Kennedy had said if you were married, you wouldn't have to be drafted. So romantic. And later when people said... um, oh, um, what, what, what happened to your first marriage? Why didn't it work? He said, oh, it was because of the war. And there was more truth in that than um, the, the one-liner suggested. Yeah, well, the career took off very quickly. I mean, he was writing for um, Andy Williams, I think, the new Christian Minstrels. I mean, how did, he get, how did it all happen so fast? He was working in a bank, first of all. Yeah, well, yeah this, is, this is the great secret to the Nielsen success. He, was, um, he didn't need any sleep. He worked the night shift in a bank in the valley in Los Angeles and he went to work at about 8 o'clock at night finished at 2 in the morning and then used to write songs until about 6 in the morning he'd have a couple of hours nap in a chair and then he'd go out and sell the songs to publishers during the day often performing in the evening on the club circuit he never performed professionally and then go back to the bank the next evening so he basically didn't have any sleep for about 8 years two hours a night or thereabouts. But during that time, he wrote a number of the sort of templates for songs that were going to be the core of the albums that came on. But actually, by the time he was signed to RCA with this, this was the first RCA album in 1967, the big thing that changed his life was that the Monkees bought one of his songs. Now, they were, whatever you think about the Monkees, in commercial terms, if one of your songs was bought by them you got Lennon and McCartney level royalties. And the first year's royalties from that song, which was Cuddly Toy, ended up being $70,000. And that was probably enough to make him leave a $5,000 a year job at the bank. I've got to ask this. What was the job at the bank? Because you say he was a mathematical genius. I mean... He, He was very early into bank computers. And he cheated on his application form by saying he'd graduated from high school in maths. He hadn't. He'd dropped out because of being chucked out of the house in Long Island and thumbing his way across the States. But he was so good at maths that they believed him. And after six months, they said, "Um, Mr. Nelson, we've just got your references through, and um, it appears that you don't have this qualification you've claimed. He said, well, am I doing a good job or not? And they said, well, actually, we couldn't run these computers without you. And he was by that stage supervising a staff of six programmers. So, you know, he was very... He was a man who... One of his tricks, if you met him in a bar, he'd say, "Um, when were you born? And you'd say, you know, 14th of November, 1952. And he'd say, oh, that was a Tuesday. That quickly. And he was always right. Didn't... Wasn't the name of his son... Wasn't there some mathematical formula that he did? Uh, Yes, his his son was Zach Nine Nielsen. Um, and the nine, nine, yeah, yeah uh, the nine is numerological, and I'm not going to go into the additions and subtractions of the the letters of the name and the date of birth. He was born on the 17th of the first 71, so there was a sort of um, numerological issue there. And the combination of the numerical values of his name, Z A K, the date of birth, and everything else meant that uh, apparently Nielsen was due in a recording studio, and he popped in to see his new son and his wife. And as he was leaving, he, he said, um, you'll sort out the christening and the naming. And she said, yeah, yeah, Harry, that's fine. You know, we've agreed the name, Zach, that's, that's cool. And then he came back, running in from the car park, having worked this numerological thing out and said, but the middle name must be nine. <laughs> and it's just the figure nine. 
and uh, all his children have odd names. So uh, my, my great friend, his son Keith, uh, is Keith O. Nielsen, and Keith is spelt K-I-E-F, because his mother is Una O'Keefe. And so he's Keith O, which is O'Keefe backwards, Nielsen. Um, I must thank him for that so much. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to put this in because the Pandemonium Shadow Show has had, I think, 22 really obvious references to the Beatles. And it's the beginning of a kind of mutual love affair. Uh, the Beatles adore him and he adores the Beatles. How, how did that change his fortunes? Because he wrote a piece, a, a, a song about he did. the there's success a, of the Beatles in America. Uh, yeah, and there's this one song on the album, name which I temporarily forget, which has got all these... Beatles references yeah. in it, and, and I've charted them in the book, bar by bar, just actually saying which two bars have come from here and which have come from there. Uh, he loved them. He, he absolutely adored them. But they very quickly discovered him by two routes. Derek Taylor, we, their publicist. We've got pictures of all, all of them. There's him with George, him with John, and there's a Ringo, and there's a Paul. So, and he had, it, it was extraordinary that, that he should have met them at that stage and that they should have been so fond of him. And he had very different relationships with all four, didn't he? Yes, but the, the, the catalyst in this was Derek Taylor. And so Derek Taylor had been the Beatles' publicist. He'd worked for Brian Epstein. He'd had a bit of a falling out um, with the Beatles. He'd gone to work in L.A. and he'd been publicising various other people. And in L.A., slightly earlier than Derek says in his memoirs, he encountered Nielsen and realised that he was a fantastic singer. And so some of the singles that Nielsen made for Mercury before he was signed to RCA, before he was famous, Derek had made sure they got them. And when Pandemonium Shadow Show came out, Derek made sure that Harry met George at a party that was being held in um, Beverly Hills. And so there was a very close connection, and uh, George clearly liked what he heard. And the story goes that Nielsen, this nocturnal writing carried on after he left the bank. So when he signed to RCA, they said, what do you want as part of your contract? And allegedly, though I've seen the contract and it's not mentioned, so it must have been a a, a rider that is now lost. He said, well, I'd like an office where I can work at night. And so he would go into the RCA building as everybody else was leaving and sit there all night writing songs. And so he's sitting there one night at one in the morning and the phone rings. And the voice says, hello, Harry, this is John. You're fucking great, man. And it was indeed John Lennon ringing him up in the middle of the night. He got the number from Derek Taylor. The next week, Paul rang him up with a very similar, though less expletive-laden message. And he was sitting there the third week, and Ringo never rang. <laughs> <laughs> so he was the only guy in the RCA building, the security man or whatever, and Harry Nielsen upstairs. Yep. What a beautiful picture that is. And, and the song Without Her, which I'm sitting there in a chair and she never comes, is a classic portrait of him sitting all night writing songs. That's on Pandemonium Shadow Show. Richard Perry, who you talked about earlier, I think made a point that he could do things vocally that Paul McCartney and John Lennon couldn't do. What, what, what did he mean by that? And what do you think the, the, all four Beatles saw in him that, was, that made such an impression? Well, first of all, Nielsen was a fantastic mimic. And he did do uh, a song about the Beatles. They came over in February 1967, before when they did the Ed Sullivan Show. And they were filmed at that point on the Ed Sullivan Show and arriving. And Nielsen and a songwriter, who sadly was too ill really to talk to me much about the book, I did have a couple of phone chats to him called John Mariscalco, wrote a, a song called Hey Hey All for the Beatles. And they made a very early version of a video. So if you went to your local record store, you got the 45 single and you got a roll of Super 8 film with some click marks in it. So as the film went through, you saw 54321 and that's when you dropped the needle on the record and you got (laughs) Harry and John singing and Harry did all the Beatle voices. 
And the Beatles thought this was great. Here's this guy in America doing a fantastic vocal impression of the four of them with a backing that actually sounds more like the Stones, but that's just because it's the Keith Richard kind of dum 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 rhythm all the way through it. But it's, uh, they loved it. It was very flattering. When they came back to the States, everybody's going, hey, we've got your record. But it wasn't their record. It was Harry's record. So a little bit later than that, Nielsen is on national... Sorry, the Beatles are on national television in the States. And the interviewer says, so who's your favourite group? And they said, Nielsen. And it was because of that. Because of those, those impressions. Those impressions. And then, obviously... They liked the work that he'd done no, sure. on the first RCA yeah. albums, but they kept on saying favorite group, didn't they? Yeah. I, I came across this loads of times. You know, did the lifelines in the enemy? People were always asked favorite group, and they always said Nielsen. Yeah, and and he became he came over very early on, 1968, I think, when Oscar Preminger was not Oscar. What's his name? Preminger. Otto, Otto, Otto Preminger. Preminger. was making. Has anybody seen Skidoo? So you'd agree, one of the worst films ever made, except for Harry's dustbin ballet. So the trash can ballet, where they all, all these people inside trash cans moving around with Harry as a very stoned guard on the uh, sort of high tower looking down on this great sequence in the film, but the rest of it eminently forgettable. But Preminger gave him a long weekend off to go and join the Beatles for the making of the White Album at Abbey Road. So he turned up at Abbey Road, and there he was. Uh, He met John. John took him out to his house in, in Surrey and, and uh, John and Yoko were there. Cynthia was on holiday at the time um, and uh, shortly before the divorce. And, and Harry spent all night talking to Lennon. The next day, McCartney came round to his hotel and they annoyed everybody else at the Dorchester by playing songs well into the night. And the next door room, there's a huge banging little, do you know what time of night it is? Really, it's disgusting. Oh, oh it's Mr. In. McCartney. Oh, that's all right then. <laughs> so they carried on. I was going to ask about um, the point, because at this stage he hadn't sold fast numbers of records, you know, and um, he, well, apart from the old monk, Monkeys uh, single, but he, he put a lot of effort into it at the point, which was a, 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 a musical play and an album and an animated film. Well, it was an animated film first. First, yeah. yeah. So tell us a bit about that, because it's, it's, it seems interesting that he put so much of his energy into that thing, which is probably a bit too complicated for, for general consumption. Well, it's... You say that, but actually the point's been shown, I'm I'm sure Catalan could confirm this, on American television every Christmas, ever since it was first made. It's the all-time Christmas feel-good movie, in a sense. So, who's seen the point? Oh, there's some Nielsen. So, for those who haven't had that luxury, it's an extraordinary film, a cartoon film, about a civilization in which everybody's got a pointy head. Except one person, who's the hero, Oblio, and fortunately, he's got a dog called Arrow who's got a very pointy nose. And Arrow, when, when they have games like Flinging the Triangle, um, that's a different film altogether with Ringo. Come back to that. But um, uh, Arrow wins Throw the Triangle and various other things. And so the Count, whose son loses the game, decides to have Oblio banished from the city of pointy people. And he goes off into the woods where he meets the pointless man, uh, the pointing sisters, all sorts. Everything has a point. Then he comes back, um, returns from exile, and strangely, he's grown a point on his head, and everybody else has lost theirs. So it's a sort of morality tale that um, people uh, are prejudiced about things, 
and actually don't necessarily see that the point is inside you. Nielsen was very good at these little sort of epigrammatic plots, and he wrote lots of them, and later on, when he formed a film company, had the luck to make one or two of them into films, including The Telephone, which starred Whoopi Goldberg. So he was never just about being a singer or a bank clerk. He had all these other interests going on, and that the idea of making a cartoon film appealed to him, and particularly because he loved the animator, Fred Wolf. Now, Fred was the key to the whole film. We haven't got a still from the point by any no, chance. No, we haven't. Um, well, I'll try and describe Fred's drawings, but he used to do the title sequences for the Flintstones. And if you remember sort of series 19 or 20 of the Flintstones, the titles stopped looking like the rest of the show. They were much scratchier and quicker, and he basically missed out a whole level of animation and drew straight to gel so that he wasn't doing the pencil sketch bit in between. Fred, really interesting man, still alive, ought to write his autobiography. Sorry, I haven't got time. Somebody should do it. Um, Fred is a really brilliant guy and revolutionised cartoon making. And Harry, because he was always into the new, wanted to do new things, came up with the plot and Fred was the right man to draw it. And there are two great songs in it of which I think Me and My Arrow is just one of the great songs, even though the American car-making company Pierce Arrow stole it for an advert later on. But, um, you know, Me and My Arrow... Do you you think he was one of those people who had too many ideas for the music business? Well, yes and no. I I think he was full of ideas before he had the chance to make them. And once he had the chance to make them... He was too full of the good things of life to have the ideas. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was roughly where our teenagers at the time, like me, first heard of him, actually. And, and it's, this is a, a period when the movie industry had latched onto, very successfully, The Graduate, um, Butch Cassidy, um, the idea of using a particular song as a kind of marketing tool. But this was a, a major uh, turning point in his uh, career, wasn't it? Yeah, so how did that come about? How did he get well, John Schlesinger actually commissioned a number of people to write songs for the title sequence of this film, including, if I'm right, uh, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan was one. Um, Wasn't Lay, Lay, Lay one of them, I think? Yeah. I think that was his contribution. Yes. And and they didn't use it. There were a whole raft of people who came up with songs, and and including Nielsen, who wrote a a song called I Guess the Lord Must Be in New York City, which is actually much more about the film. Much better. Well, Well, except that everybody's talking somehow captured the mood. And the reason that it did was that waiting for all these songwriters to write a song, Schlesinger and his co-director decided that they just use Everybody's Talking to give the feel of the sort of song that they wanted. And if you look at that opening sequence of John Voigt kind of rushing around, leaving the kitchen, getting packed up, ready to get in the bus, just about to go to New York, apart from the fact that there's a complete logical gap with the idea that you're going where the sunshine's bright and actually you're leaving the south and moving to the cold wilderness of New York, suspend that one piece of disbelief. And the song gets inside John Voigt's mind in an extremely astute way, not least because Nielsen went and re-recorded a six-and-a-half-minute version of it for the credits. I mean, the original is only two-and-a-half minutes, but the, the version you see on the soundtrack, complete with that brilliant arrangement, yeah. um, which is George Tipton at his absolute best. He was, a, he was the genius arranger that set most of the music for the first three Nielsen albums. And it, it's just a work of amazing... Now, genius. he fell out with George Tipton, didn't he? He did. So by the time he came to make his next great Grammy-winning hit, Without You, he was working with Paul Buckmaster, Miraculous a Brit. we have here. There it is. But, so what's the basis of the falling out with Tipton? I think that was due to the Beatles. 
Um, the George Tipton had been one of the people who first got Harry recognised and brought him into the whole idea of being a career songwriter. He'd worked with two guys, one of whom was Perry Botkin Jr., who's still going, absolutely charming man, songwriter, whose dad was um, the guitarist for Bing Crosby during the war, uh, Perry Botkin Sr. I mean, Perry is Los Angeles royalty. He just goes back through this amazing musical tradition. And they had this little office that did publishing and songwriting and copying and everything else. And that's where Nielsen met Tipton when he came in to demonstrate his songs. And Tipton recognized the talent. Now, George Tipton was making his money as a copyist for people like Nelson Riddle. And from them, learned the craft of arranging and gradually became equally... Well, I don't know if you could be equally good as Nelson Riddle, but certainly as distinctive. And so he developed a style of arranging which very much was the signature of the first albums, Pandemonium Shadow Show, Aerial Ballet, and Harry. And he arranged virtually everything on those three albums. And then Harry reckoned that having seen George Martin at work with the Beatles, and particularly the way that they were beginning to call the shots about how the music worked. So you think about the songs he saw being made in London. George Harrison's recording Piggies, actually that weekend while he was there. And it's so different from anything else the Beatles had done up to that point. And Harry went back to the States thinking, well, Tipton's working with me on the score of Skidoo. We'll finish this. We've got one or two more things to do. We'll finish those. But actually, what I want to do now is for my own production company, the way the Beatles have, and I want to sell my wares to High Speed. This is where Richard Perry came in, one of the first entrepreneurial record producers who wasn't tied to a label. This is Richard Perry, in fact, here. Yeah, yeah Richard on the, on the right there. And uh, now Mr. Jane Fonda. Um, he's married to Jane yes. Fonda. And uh, he's... Uh, it's all gone badly wrong for Richard Burke, all the way through his career. Still producing records, uh, still got a great pair of ears, really interesting guy. Um, so anyway, Harry decided to go independent, and Tipton, because he'd been enthralled to RCA and he'd worked with Rick Gerard, who was uh, Harry's producer there, Harry sacked his producer and his arranger at the same time and, and did it very badly. I mean, if he could have done it by email, he would have. But he did it by telegram, which was almost as bad. <laughs> so they now Richard Perry, they're quoted as saying, you know, that he was going to be my George Martin and I was going to be his Beatles. Is that is that fair? I think it's absolutely true of Nielsen Schmilson. I think it's it, it's it's the peak of his career. It's an album that shows exactly how Harry's songwriting meets Richard Perry's production genius. And it's a great shame that they weren't able to keep that collaboration going. But they couldn't find any songs, isn't this right? He, he used to drag him around music publishers when they were making this in well, London. That, that's, of course, how Badfinger's song, Without You, got to be on the album. Because um, Harry'd heard it somewhere. They vaguely thought it was a Beatles song. They went all around London trying to find it. They got the sheet music. They went in. Harry cut a demo, which is an extraordinary piece of work. Harry just sitting at the piano and pounding out, can live if living is without you, and, and, and playing terribly badly on the piano. And he thought it was so good, he asked Richard to release it. And Richard said, no, I think we can do a bit better than that. Because he was becoming peculiar at this point, wasn't he? I mean, there's a long description in the book of, of the making of this record where, where Perry made them do up to you know, 50 takes. The whole band was... Was it Chris Spedding? I think Jim Keltner, an incredible lineup of session musicians. And he just repeatedly made them do this stuff again and again. And what happened with Without You? It eventually was recorded four in the morning or something when he just yeah, talked and, to Yeah, and the it. vocal take is a single take. Yeah. And, and according to Derek but Taylor... he'd done various versions of that that just hadn't worked. Well, he'd, he'd done that demo. Yeah. Um... So what, what they did was that... The way Richard works is he likes to 
feel a song happen. So, for example, going, when, when he was taking me through Your So Vain, they made five demos of that before the final version with Jim Gordon on drums, which is the, the definitive cut. So what he'd tend to do is he'd, he'd record an initial version like Harry's demo. Then he'd strip out the accompaniment, take the vocal line, and build from scratch an accompaniment. And then he'd kind of get the feeling he wanted and then go into the studio and cut it with real live musicians and the singer doing for real what they do. And, and you know, it's, it's the beginning of making things on computers, except that, you know, he didn't have the luxury of being able to use a MIDI system. He used real musicians and took a track at a time, built them up with loads and loads of tape, lots and lots of multi-tracking, until finally they got something that would work. So without you, he worked with this... Gene- Anybody familiar with the name Paul Buckmaster? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Paul worked with everybody from well, his own band, the Electric Light Orchestra, Miles Davis, he was uh, instrumental. Apologies on. for the background sound again, sorry. Very appropriate. Crime filled his yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, very appropriate for some parts yeah, of Harry's yeah. career. But um, so, Paul, Paul is the guy who did the genius string arrangement on Without You, and it absolutely works. But the other reason they had to do it in a single take, according to Derry Taylor, was that Harry, as a result of his drinking habits, had a very unpleasant attack of piles. And he actually found it very painful to hit the high notes. So he just wanted to do it in one go, if he possibly could. I should never hear that song the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Because the high note was very much his contribution to that, wasn't it? Because the the original one is nothing like that, and the Badfinger version. The sad thing, of course, is that they were doing the post-production work on it, dropping in the last little bits and, and pieces of strings and everything else. And they discovered that Badfinger in the next studio at I think it was one of the big London studios in Wembley and they said hey come listen to this and, you know they were absolutely gobsmacked they had no idea that this could be done with their song they did get the chance to hear it before Harry released it but they knew then he was going to have the hit they never yeah, had yeah. the thing I love about this record apart from anything else is the cover yes it's true you know the, the, We'll have a blurry picture of the artist staggering downstairs in a dressing gown in the middle of the night with the munchies, presumably. About to raid the fridge. You know what I mean? Well, the fridge is on on the the back cover, I think you'll find. Sorry, say again? The fridge is on the back cover. Yes. So, you know, if you want, it's a a portrait of a man starting to disintegrate, isn't it? You know, which puts on the cover of his biggest album. Because up till then, he was selling about, what, 100,000 copies, and this sold 5 million. And it nearly six, most, yeah. Nearly six. It had the most incredible effect. And I don't really understand why. I mean, the boozing had started already, but the boozing now started in earnest. Now, was that because he had something to celebrate or because he, it was a sense of relief that he had some success or he was, just had the money to be able to bunk oh. off and behave how he wanted to or what? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell an anecdote from a slightly different area of music, but you'll get the point. Um, I used to produce Ken Clark, former Chancellor's um, jazz series for Radio 4. And... Uh, we got a lovely Scottish playwright called Mike Moran, who'd written a, a play called The Long Night of Chet Baker, to come in and talk to Ken about Chet. And Ken was waxing lyrical about, you know, Chet's wonderful sound on the trumpet, his wonderful lyrics and everything else. And then he said, well, of course, you know, it's a very bad thing that Chet got so involved in drugs, because it sort of completely ruined his career. And Mike looked at him and said, well, Ken, you said, the thing you don't understand is Chet liked taking drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is the thing about Harry. He loved taking drugs, and he loved drinking a lot. And if you earn the kind of money that you do when you have a six million selling album, uh, you spend it. And I think you know, his wife, Diane, said, second wife, Diane, said that at this point, fame did go to his head. She was horrified when she came to London 
by the amount that session musicians drank. She'd never seen anything like it. You know, the guys like Herbie Flowers and Chris Bedding, who were family men, would have a drink or two and then go home to their families. But the, the real liggers, the people used to read about in Melody Maker every week, who were in and out of the studios the whole time, the brass players, the saxophone players, and so on, they took Harry on tours of Soho. I mean, Ronnie Scott's was the first stop, not the last stop. Um, and that closed at three. You know, it, it was uh, certainly a life he'd not seen before with that degree of, of cohorts of hard drinkers who were working with him on the album. And it started to have an incredibly bad effect on his voice, didn't it? I mean, he, he developed all sorts of real problems with his singing and uh, well, vocal well, cords bleeding. And Yeah, I mean, the voice really goes to bits after the making of Nielsen Schmielsen. It's on the way out on that album, but he's still singing... There's a couple of things. And the film of the making of Nielsen Schmilson, which is called Did Somebody Drop His Mouse? Um, which, according to Richard, is about to be released. It may come out this year. That There was a 17-CD set that RCA did of all Harry's work, including the one example of his singing live in London that my dear friend Brian Matthew forgot to tell me about on the Brian Matthew show, uh, which we managed to get, and it's on the RCA set. That came out in parallel with the book, and RCA are now trying to do, if they can get around the licensing problems, a DVD set, which will have the two in-concert programmes that Harry did for the BBC and the original film, which you can see in bits, and very bad bits on YouTube, if did somebody drop his mouse, but it, it, it is... And the rushes I've seen in the States are... It's an amazing film. So this is the, the film to go with Sonnenschmilson, isn't it? Yes, and right. it has a song... And it was supposed to be a kind of audio-visual project, wasn't yes, it? Yes, except that, I mean, for example, um, although some of the songs with um, uh, less than printable lyrics, uh, there's, there's a, a great film of um, several of the band singing along to one of the tracks and uh, the reason they're singing so badly according to Nielsen is that the four of them had consumed four bottles of brandy during the making of the <laughs> of the video um, but there's a fantastic bit in the film of Nielsen singing a song that didn't get on the album called What's My Sign he later made a really not such good version of it with Perry Botkin with a full orchestra which is on one of the later albums but Sandman and it's on this album, had they done it, Nicky Hopkins on piano, Harry singing, very light accompaniment, and his voice is as angelic yeah. as he'd ever got, it's just fabulous and we should say too, the one album that's got great relevance to today, that he'd made by this time, is Nielsen Sings Newman, which if you want yeah. a yeah. classic example of Harry's voice doing everything that Harry's voice could yeah. with the exception of that wonderful Ringo album it's the best ever Why didn't he play live because you know part of the reason I think that people you know that he's not perhaps regarded in, in, with, in the stature he should be is that people don't feel they've got that much of a relationship with him if people t played live and you went to see them and you could see them on tour and there was lots of access to them in, via the press when they were on tour you had some understanding who that person was you know so why didn't he play because he well, very very rarely if ever played live I think you sort of answered your own question he didn't want that life he didn't want to be recognised he'd seen what it had done to the Beatles and he didn't like it at all but wasn't there an element of stage fright as well well Different people have different views on this. Um, people who've seen him perform live... Um, uh, one of my great friends, Tim Blackmore, is a Radio 1 producer who saw the showcase that he did to launch Pandemonium Shadow Show for 
um, RCA, in the which UK. is actually done at the UK, the and he UK. sang live briefly on that, and he said he was so stupendous. There was no stage fright. Also, um, when Stanley Dorfman produced the in-concert film for the BBC, which Harry did without an audience, they shot some audience bits to cut into it. And Harry was apparently the most genius warm-up man. He went out and told jokes and did his Stan Laurel routines and everything else, and the audience were falling about laughing. And Stanley said to him, well, why don't you bring an audience in to do the show? He said, no, I just want to do that for the cameras, because we will make a better product if we've got the chance to edit, to do it again. And he absolutely believed in studio craft. But, coming back to another thing, you asked about the, pic- the cover of Nielsen Schmilson in the dressing gown. If you think about all the covers of every Nielsen album, up to and beyond that point, you never see what Harry looked like. Even in Pandemonium Shadow Show, he'd stopped looking like the bank clerk by the time that came out. The next album, Aerial Ballet, is a cartoon, somebody hanging off an aircraft. The next album is Harry, where you see a drawing of 12-year-old Harry. The next album is Nielsen Sings Newman, where you see a sort of Apache black-and-white photograph in an old car with Newman on the back seat. You never see anything that shows what Harry looked like. And the reason for that was he wanted to live a private life in L.A. when nobody recognised him. And he did. Apart from perhaps this one picture here <laughs> on the lost weekend with John Lennon. Yeah, John oh, Lennon may pang in the middle. Extraordinary story. I always liked the idea that Yoko Ono gave the impression that she had ordained, if not planned, the whole thing. I think that was probably retrospective thinking. But John Lennon went off with, with her secretary, didn't he? With May Pang, with, with May pang who, uh, for uh, about 18 months and spent a lot of it in Los Angeles with Harry. Um, you know, getting thrown out of clubs. And uh, in fact, Lennon didn't Lennon threaten to beat up or try and beat up a female photographer? Or am I uh, just after this was taken? That's, so yeah. um, yes, this was uh, with the Smothers Brothers. Yeah, they're in the audience. There, you can see the effect of the Brandy Alexander's milk and brandy that Harry is drinking. Um, his eyes were usually a little bit less shut than that after that amount of alcohol. Um, Lennon, um, when they Lennon started shouting. Um, comments on the lack of comedy in the Smothers Brothers show and the bouncers threw him out and he threw a punch at one of the bouncers because he was on a visa that could be withdrawn at any minute because of his UK drug conviction this was a very stupid thing for Lennon to have done though Harry, who sobered up almost immediately after this then organised the whole campaign to avoid getting Lennon deported And one of the reasons that their friendship prospered as a result of that was that even though Lennon was in a bit of a state all the way through that long weekend, he recognised the fact that Harry had got him out of trouble and largely allowed him to stay in the country. And then Lennon sort of repaid the debt, didn't he? Because didn't he help engineer a hugely valuable recording contract for Harry? Yes, so uh, they made Pussycats, which is the album where Harry's voice started bleeding and uh, his throat started bleeding and and, uh, it's a disaster of an album although um, as I say in the book um, one of the things that RCA did was in those days they used totally different sessions to produce a quadraphonic version and the quad version the voice is great because it was made six months later in New York but the the LA sessions are pretty dire they did it again for quad yeah, they did it again for Quad. And actually, some of the vocals on the stereo version date from that New York session six months later, by which time Harry's voice is a lot better. But in L.A., I mean, they were living in a beach house, which Van Dyke Parks took me to see this house. I mean, I can't imagine why 
they didn't really need to get stoned. They got the whole Pacific Ocean. There's this amazing place. But according to Klaus Vormann, who was the only sober member, well, fairly sober member of the band, in this house they had Keith Moon, Ringo Starr, their respective partners, John Lennon, <laughs> Harry Nielsen. What could and, possibly go wrong? Yeah. possibly go wrong? Uh, so they tended to wake up about seven in the evening and then have a drink and this, that and the other or two before they went to the studios to work all night. So, sorry, go through again, those, those people in the house again. So you've got Keith Moon and a different partner every night. Of course. Um, John Lennon and May Pang. Ringo, who then moved to a hotel... Because he was getting too much for yeah. it. Klaus Furman and Harry. Oh, it, it's brandy on the cornflakes, isn't That's it? That's extreme. There's a, there's a, there's a rather, rather kind of a low-rent clue on this album cover. You can barely see, but there's a letter D on the left there under the table and a letter S on the right. And between the two is a rug, which spells the word drugs, as, oh. if, as if that would need to be spelled out. <laughs> Strangely enough... RCA rejected several designs, but they didn't spot that. They didn't spot it, did they? That's right, they'd sneaked it past them. It's astonishing. So, oh, this we just had to... uh, I'm I'm personally intrigued by this. This, um, His final marriage, which, on the face of it, going into it, appeared to be... It had all the makings of a disaster, but it wasn't. By the time they got to this point, Harry had a stupendous hangover from his stag night. He woke it up in the morning. The best man is Ringo Starr, incidentally, yeah. on the left, so there's yeah. another clue. There. So he took a line of coke to sort of get himself stabilised in the morning. Then thought he'd better have a brandy or two just to stop the shakes. Then he was picked up by Ringo, who said, Harry, I've got some coke for you to sort yourself out, just to, you know, stabilise you in the car on the way. So he had another line of coke then. When he got to the church, the um, rather hip vicar that they got to do the service said, hey, Harry, come in the vestry, I've got some coke for you. <laughs> so he said, by the time we got to this point, I was shaking. Una thought it was emotion. But she was a young Irish... He met her, she was a waitress, wasn't she? She worked in, I can't remember, Rumpel Something's ice cream parlour on Central Park in New York... And, uh, yeah, she served him ice cream in the middle of the night, and he fell in love with her there and then. And at the end of the evening, he said, I'm going to marry you, and she thought it was silly. He went off, came back in a limo with... He'd happened on a flower shop that was preparing for a funeral, and he bought the lot and came back. And she came out from work at three in the morning, and the whole pavement was littered with flowers from this funeral parlour that he'd bought all the way to the limo. And he said, you are going to marry me, and she did. There's one it's other a very, story. Very romantic story. And then they had how many children? I mean, uh, seven. Seven uh, children, I think. So, they, but it's quite interesting because his career at this point is sort of over, isn't it? Really, yeah. commercially. Sorry, six of theirs, and then of course they had Zach before. So I just, I was just doing okay. the sums again. Right. Okay. But his career is is gone at this point, isn't it? Yes. Um, but his personal life started. Well, no, his career's not gone. Um, he is just about to make one of my favourite albums of all, which is A Little Touch of Schmissen oh, okay, in the Night. Right, right. And he, he marries Una, and uh, she's got to go back to Ireland. Well, no, he, he proposes to her. She goes back to Ireland. He goes to seek her parents' approval for the marriage, which is something he'd never done with the previous wives. Uh, but he's a bit worried about how this is going to go, so he brings Mickey DeLenz and his wife with him for some... Come, Mickey DeLenz of the Monkeys. Um, so party time goes on in Dublin quite a lot. Uh, but actually, uh, the O'Keefe parents thought he was great, and he was really lovely and nice, and uh, 
I think the great thing about Harry was that this was the love of his life, and however difficult his life was in many respects, he was great with Una, and the family life remained isolated from the public career. The idea he wasn't recognised as a public figure was worked very well for that, and they brought up the kids. They're great kids, all of them. We may not have time for the Stanley Dorfman's car incident when he asked his friend Stanley if he could borrow the car and then brought it back. Was it a month later? He borrowed Jimmy Webb's car and he and Stanley Dorfman drove from the West Coast to the East Coast in the car by which time Jimmy Webb's... Having said they'd bring it back that afternoon. Yeah, his pristine Jaguar XK6 was a total wreck. This is the man who had, you know, six or seven children. So, you know, tremendous uh, role model. This is the... um, this is the incident of oh, oh, the sex of his life after the death of Lennon. He was so affected by the, the death of John Lennon that he started to campaign about, the, um, about handguns. Is that yes. right? Yeah. Um, the, the night he was to hear of Lennon's death, he was actually recording with an artist who's not terribly well-known, Frank Stallone, brother of Sylvester. Um, Harry had decided to produce him. Frank's a lovely guy. He looks like a sort of unsteroid version of, of Sylvester. He's a really, really <laughs> lovely guy. And actually, I owe Frank the introduction to Billy J. Kramer for the next book, so thank you, Frank. Um, he lived next door. Well, S- Sylvester lived next door to the Nielsens in Bel Air. And uh, Frank was living in his brother's house while he was off making movies like Rocky and various other things. And uh, he had an affair with the Nielsen's au pair. So he was always in and out of the Nielsen's house. And finally, Harry said, well, I'll produce your album. And they were in the middle of making it when, in the studio, Frank's singing. And usually you get some kind of comeback from the other side of the glass when you've sung a song. He did this absolutely fantastic take and looked up, and nobody was looking at him from the other side of the glass. And the phone call had come through to say that John Lennon had been shot. And it changed Harry's life overnight. He sobered up for the first time in... Ever, well, this is 1981, so it's the first time for nine years he wasn't paralytic by the end of every evening. Um, he actually wrote in a letter to Eric Taylor, I'd forgotten how lovely the 10 o'clock that you get in the morning is. Um, and he became an ardent advocate for stopping handgun violence. And I think it's very interesting that exactly the same roadblocks were put in his way by the NRA as have been put in Obama's way over the last five or six years in the United States. The gun lobby in the States then, run by people like Charlton Heston, was abhorrent and absolutely failed to see all the points that Nielsen and fellow campaigners made. Nielsen was... His value to the campaign was that he went round Hollywood and corralled some of the biggest names. If you're a million-selling rock star, you can get people to back this kind of campaign, even if you haven't made a decent record for ten years. And Nielsen did that. And he got the likes of Steve Martin, um, Rowan and Martin of the Laugh Indifferent Martin, that all these people to back the campaign. And they, they really felt that they were getting somewhere. But, you know, gun legislation in the States is a morass. It's a very difficult thing to control. Harry spent the rest of his life, all 12 years of it, campaigning ceaselessly, flying 60,000 air miles a year, Around the States, mainly. He, just really, he put his career on hold, didn't he? For that? There wasn't much of a career after yeah. that. I mean, he stopped making albums. He made a few singles, some of which are great and some of which you can hear the voice coming back. But really, from that moment on, his life was about gun control. 
Do you think he's appreciated at the level he ought to be appreciated? I mean, well, there's a big campaign going on now saying Harry Nilsson for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, it's running at the moment. If you go online, you can find the thing. You can sign up and try and get him recognised for it. I think that a combination of the momentum in RCA to bring all those albums back... I mean, that was happening before I started the book. Um, fortunately, we were able to work together on it. But um, just having that body of music come back, um, I think, is uh, phenomenal. And when you listen to all of it, all 17 CDs in that box, you realise it's a pretty amazing life's work. There's a kind of irony that the, 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 the two songs he's most famous for are songs he didn't write. Everybody's yeah, but, talking and, and without you. But then he's quite famous for having written songs for other bands for songs he didn't sing himself. So, well, he did sing one, for example, which Three Dog Night had a number one hit with. Yes, and, Amy Mann. Yeah, and, and, the, the, and there are lots of other songs that, I mean, without her got covered by all sorts of people, which Harry did write, as opposed to without yeah. you. Um, Lulu, I think, made a version of that. Herb Alpert made a version of it. I mean, there are loads of, of different people who took up his work. Yeah. And even The Lord Must Be in New York City got covered by a lot of people, including, I think, Carly Simon. I mean, there were, there were many, many people who did his songs. The Monkees, of course, did a number of them. Have you got a particular one, particular, well, a particular song and a particular moment you think... I've got two songs, two songs. Well, two songs I like that I think epitomise Harry. One is Nobody Cares About the Railroads Anymore. And the reason I like that song is it's a perfectly crafted 1930s vaudeville song. Everything about it, the chord sequence, the way the song works, the lyrics, the encapsulation of a story, and the way it's sung, and the fact that the jazz group accompanying him has the brilliant guitarist Howard Roberts and Al McKibben on the bass, who are some of my heroes from the jazz world, it kind of brings my two areas of music together in one song. But it's a perfect pop song, and Harry sings it unbelievably brilliantly. And I think, in a way... That's the song that is his own equivalent to Everybody's Talking or Without You. And the other one I really like um, is, I've just momentarily forgotten the name, Daylight Has Found You. It's the song that he did with Dr. John. And there's a wonderful process. Um, Keith gave me the cassette tapes of the two of them writing this song about a vampire together. And finally, they make it work and, and Mac plays the piano for him and Harry sings it. And it's just the most phenomenal example of having heard the creative process from the two of them noodling around, trying lots of ideas, and then getting to the finished song. It's a great song. Well, it's a fantastic book, and um, you'll be glad to hear that Alan has bought several copies with him, actually. Can, can I just say, yes, as, apropos of the next talk that yes. you've got, I have one Randy Newman anecdote to share with you. Oh, go on. Oh, go on. So on the 30th of October last year, my Buck Clayton Legacy Band was playing at the Sage in Gateshead. And the next night, in the same hall, Randy was doing his one-man show. Part of our contract was that on the Saturday morning, we'd go back in and do a workshop with the great and the good of the um, Newcastle jazz scene, or the Gateshead jazz scene. And a lot of the people from the previous night's concert turned up. We were supposed to be on stage at 10 in the morning, because we were, in the way these tours work, playing in Maidstone in the evening. And uh, getting from Newcastle at noon to Maidstone for a sound check at 5.30 was quite a daunting drive. So we were there bright and early, and uh, we were unloading my car in the loading bay, and Randy's tour bus had arrived, and I'm quite sure that he thought that absolutely nobody would be around at 8.30 in the morning. So just as Karen Sharp, our baritone saxophonist, was taking her instrument out of the back of my car, she looked up, and the curtains of the tour bus opened, and a completely naked Randy Newman went, <laughs> Oh, my God! <laughs> and we didn't see him again. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote a song called on The that, Naked Man, didn't he? Yes, 
on that bombshell. Thank you so much, Will. Alan's got some books uh, that he'd be very keen to, uh, to sign. And if you have any questions, ask him in the interval. And a huge uh, round of applause, please, for Alan Shipton. Thanks so much. Thank this podcast was brought to you by The Word. Please get a drink and uh, we'll be Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.